The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Wealth insulates people from human connection, and that human connection is actually vital to our mental well-being and to buffering us from our psychological demons. There's an argument to be made, whether you believe it or not, that human beings evolved to fight each other and to be very, very good at it. But as the United States approaches its 15th straight year at war, rates of post-traumatic stress disorder are high. Many soldiers come home uncertain as to where they fit in and dealing with depression, anxiety, and other issues. This week on War College, we look at whether PTSD is a modern phenomenon, and if it is, what is it about the way we live now that makes it so hard to transition from the battlefield to your own home? Matthew Galt was gracious enough to take on the hosting duties this week alone. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. Jason Fields, managing editor of Reuters, is busy both managing and editing this week, but he will be back next week. Today we're going to be talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, It's a phrase that we've heard a lot about in the past 15 years since America has gone to war in the Middle East. Many soldiers come home fine. Others come home to insomnia, panic attacks, and a longing to return to the war that they left behind. But It hasn't always been this way. War is a human constant, but the way that society deals with its warriors and war has radically changed in the past 30 years. With us today on War College to talk about that is journalist, author, and documentarian Sebastian Younger. Younger is the author of War, the director of Korengal and Restrepo. His latest book, Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, is about post-traumatic stress disorder in American society and how American society deals with its soldiers. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, So I talked to you probably about a year ago. Uh, I did did a lengthy profile piece with you, and you kind of teased this book at the very end of it. Uh, And you told me that you had a different take on post-traumatic stress disorder than than what was normally being heard in the media. Um, And you very succinctly put it, and this has stuck with me since then. You said, we have the problem, not them. Uh, and I think that's a very that's a very good starting place, and it's kind of a thesis statement for for this book, I think. And I kind of wanted to I've, I've been dying to ask you the follow up question uh, now for a year, so I finally get to what is the problem that we have? Well, it's a problem that affects everybody. You don't have to be a soldier or a combat veteran to struggle psychologically in the modern world. And, and the problem is this: that as affluence goes up in a society, mental health deteriorates. Uh, so as affluence goes up, modernity goes up, the suicide rate goes up, not down. The, the rate of depression, the number of people in the society that, that have to suffer from depression, the rate goes up, not down, with affluence. And the theory is, and my book is called Tribe for precisely this reason, the theory is that as affluence goes up, people can make more and more individualistic choices. Instead of sleeping 10 to a room on the floor in a house in India, in a poor society, in a poor society, 
suddenly you have young people living by themselves in their own apartment. It's just unheard of in human history. There's a lot of great things about affluence, and there's a lot of great things about independence and making individualistic decisions. But there is a downside, and the downside is that wealth insulates people from human connection, and that human connection is actually vital to our mental well-being and to buffering us from uh, our psychological demons. Soldiers have a sort of double whammy. Not only are they, many of them, sort of psychologically vulnerable after combat, which obviously is traumatic, but they have this awful comparison that they can now make between the intimacy of life in a platoon, uh, whether you're on a, on a big base in the rear or you're on a frontline position like I was at at Restrepo, uh, you're basically living your life in conjunction with 20, 30 other people. You're doing everything with them. You're, you're, you're never more than an arm's length from a few other people. That's how we evolved as a species. That's how we evolved to live over hundreds of thousands of years. And then very abruptly, with the rise of Western society, modern society, very abruptly we turned individualistic. And so when soldiers come back from deployment, they're come back, coming back to a society that we all sort of struggle in psychologically, at least judging by the statistics, mental health statistics. But in addition, soldiers are making this radical transition from communal life to individualistic modern life. And that, in my opinion, that explains a lot of what we erroneously call uh, PTSD. Um, why do you say that we erroneously call it PTSD? Well, I, some people for sure are su suffering from trauma. Uh, Ten percent of the U.S. military engages in combat, uh, but something like fifty percent, something like half of the U.S. military has applied for some form of PTSD disability. So clearly, there's forty percent in there that weren't traumatized, but come home and are struggling psychologically from with something. Um, it's almost by definition not trauma that they're struggling with because they weren't traumatized, but they, but their struggles are real, and I think it's much more likely, and it may need a new diagnosis, it's more, much more likely that they're really struggling with is the transition from the kind of intensely bonded communal life that as a species we evolved for over many hundreds of thousands of years to the kind of alienated individualistic life that has taken hold in, in Western society. Right. You, it's interesting that you mentioned Western society because there are there are other societies where this doesn't this this rate of PTSD as we call it does not happen with their with their soldiers. Even the modern era, you pointed out, I think that the the uh, American soldiers have twice the rate the reported rate of PTSD as do British soldiers that served at the same time with them in Afghanistan. Um, That's right. And you also I you also pointed to Israel too. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and Israel is probably the best comparison. Um, they, they have they've been fighting off and on. They've been fighting a conflict right on their doorstep for um, you know a couple of generations now. And uh, the PTSD rate in Israel, and, and I should say that, that measuring PTSD in a population is extremely hard, and it really depends on what you use as a definition. I mean, that will make the numbers very widely, but. The best consensus that I could find was that in Israel, the PTSD rate is a, for, for veterans, combat veterans, is around 1%. Um, in the U.S. military, the diagnosed rate of PTSD is 20%, and the rate of disability applications is 50%. 
Um, and those are all very different things, but they're extremely important numbers. In Israel, the reason for the low rate of post-combat trauma is that, according to Israeli psychologists, is twofold. One is that everyone serves in the military. Everyone does national service. So you're, you're really going, as a soldier, you're going from a frontline position to essentially a rear base position, which is what your talent is. I mean, all of Israel is, is in some ways a, a, a potential battlefield. So, so you don't have this radical transition to a non-military society. The whole society is sort of part of the tribe, part of the military, and vice versa. That makes it very much, much easier to, to, to come home. A home is an extension of the battlefield. The battlefield is an extension of home. It's all sort of the same thing. And um, and in addition, the further you travel, and related, the further you travel to fight, the harder it is psychologically, the less... Um, the moral basis of the war in your mind, in the mind of a soldier, the moral basis of a war um, starts to become, starts to come into question the further you travel away to fight it. If you're literally fighting on your doorstep, as Israeli soldiers were doing during the Yom Kippur War uh, and the early 70s, I mean, they were literally fighting with their homes at their backs. Uh, there is absolutely no moral questioning of the war. It's a matter of survival. It's very, very obvious, and the traumas are quite low. And, and does that also kind of speak to why uh, American soldiers during World War II also didn't experience kind of the same rate of combat trauma? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They had many, many, many times the casualty rates of soldiers in today's awful wars. Um, the combat intensity was much, much greater than in today's wars. And all forms of disability, including psychiatric disability, all forms were at much, much lower rates than today. Those two lines should be going in the same direction, and actually they're going in different directions. And what I suggest in my book, Tribe, is that even two generations ago, American soldiers were coming back to a society that was much more cohesive. People were much more likely to live near near their parents, near their siblings. Um, that communities in, in, in towns and in cities, uh, local communities were much more closely interwoven and interdependent on each other. And all of that connectedness um, buffers people psychologically from trauma. And, and, and I, I originally I was sort of comparing like post-trauma, the post-trauma experience in tribal societies uh, to modern societies. There isn't a lot of data from tribal societies. So, I decided to look at modern societies that had experienced, themselves experienced the trauma. Uh, the Blitz in London, for example, the siege of Sarajevo that I was in, it was the first war that I covered, uh, New York after 9-11. So what you find is that when even modern Western society, when it's attacked, when it suffers a calamity, a catastrophe, people immediately communalize. They, they basically tribalize. And circumstances force them to share food, to share lodging, to seek protection together, um, to act um, cohesively. And as one one official said in London, it's amazing we have we have neurotics driving ambulances. The sense that your society needs you allows even psychologically damaged people, vulnerable people, to forget their own needs, their own concerns, and serve the serve the greater good, serve the group. As a result, in London during the Blitz, 
they, they lost 30,000 people to German bombs. I mean, in New York on 9-11, we lost, tragically lost 3,000 people. London was 30,000 people. And admissions to psychiatric wards in London went down during the bombing and then went back up after the bombing stopped. So calamity seems to get people to, to adhere to each other. And even though there's an increase in hardship and danger and trauma, there's a net gain in sort of emotional well-being because what we really want to do is be connected to people. And in Western society, it takes a catastrophe to make that happen. One of the that was one of the really fascinating parts to the book to me were those those first two those first two chapters because there are people that and this happens to American soldiers too they seem to pursue that connectedness even at the cost of their own personal safety. You interviewed the Bosnian journalist who was happy during the war. Um, her parents had gotten her out of the country, and, but she snuck back in, and she and you quote her as saying, "We were the happiest. We laughed more." What do you think it is that make that made her go back? Well, yes, her, her name is Nizara. She's an amazing Bosnian journal, journalist, and I met her last summer. I hadn't been in Sarajevo since the war. Transformed city now, beautiful, beautiful city, and uh, really has come to life and everything. And this, what this woman told, what Nizara told me, was that she she was badly wounded during the siege of Sarajevo. You keep in mind that the Bosnian Serb army is a professional army. They had tanks, artillery, mortars, snipers, and they basically used Sarajevo as a shooting gallery for three years. They killed or wounded twenty percent of the civilian population in that city, um, and um, so. Nizana herself was hit by a, a, a fragment from a tank round that hit her parents' apartment. She had her leg operated on full reconstructive surgery on her leg without anesthesia. I mean, that's how bad it was in Sarajevo. They were, everyone was sleeping in basements. They were growing food in the median strips of the streets of the city to, just to have something to survive with. Um, it was a brutal time. And no electricity, no heating, no water. I mean, awful, awful, awful experience for people. And they, they finally, her parents got Nizara out of the city because she was so badly hurt. And after she healed, she missed it. She wanted, she managed to sneak back into Sarajevo because she, what she missed was group living, basically. She was living in a basement of this building with all of her teenage friends. They had a little communal society in the basement. And, you know, the boys would go off to fight and come back 10 days later off the front line. And... You know, they just had this sort of tribal encampment in the, in the basement of this building. It's how we're meant to live as humans. And when I met her last summer, you know, in this beautiful rebuilt city, I was so glad to see it like that. But what she said was, you know, she said a lot of people miss, they don't want to admit it, but they miss the siege. You know, they miss, and she said specifically, she said, I, she goes, I hate war. You know, don't get me wrong, I hate war. But I miss who we were back then. We were better people back then because we were we were we were less selfish. We helped each other, and there was even some graffiti that she told me about that said uh, on a wall in Bosnia, and it said things were better when they were bad. It's an amazing, devastating comment on on the effect of modernity on affluence and safety on on our mental health. So, do you think that this is? kind of going off on a tangent here, but do you think that our biology just hasn't caught up to our technological advances? Well, no, I, of course not. I mean, it takes something like 25,000 years for uh, major evolutionary changes to take place in the human species. So we haven't even caught up to the advent of agriculture, which started about 10,000 years ago. We, we, In terms of evolutionary change, we haven't even begun to catch up to agriculture. 
going to catch up to the, the, the effect of the iPhone on our brain for another 25,000 years when undoubtedly Western society will no longer exist. I mean, we're not, we're not going to have time to catch up with it before we destroy ourselves with it. All right. So are we, is American society and Western society, is it anti-human? Well, one anthropologist I spoke with, I mean, I, you know, as a journalist, I, I refrain from making pronouncements and opinions about things. <laughs> I just try to provide information. But one, one anthropologist I spoke with said that the Western society is anti-human in a sense. And in the sense that she meant was humans are wired to live communally, to live in very tightly bonded groups of 30, 40, 50 people. And we were really not meant to go through our lives as individualistic entities. And Western society, of course, promotes that way of going through life. And in that sense, it's anti-human. Okay. So how did other and older societies deal with this problem? Because we've, we've, because war has been a human constant, right? What is it that, that say the Romans or tribal societies are doing that's different when, with their, how do they treat their warrior class? Well, the, you know, the Romans were a pretty evolved society that I think were starting to have some of the problems that, 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 that we have. Um, trauma is a part of nature, mm-hmm. and humans are a part of nature. We evolved to deal with trauma. Uh, if, we weren't, if, if trauma was psychologically crippling to us, we wouldn't exist as a species. We'd be dead. Um, everyone reacts, virtually everyone reacts to trauma with short-term PTSD. It's adaptive. It helps you survive a dangerous circumstance. It protects you psychologically. It protects you physically. Um, it's exactly the short-term reaction to trauma is exactly what you want to be doing when your life's in danger. Can you explain um, for our audience, for some people that may not know, exactly what that short-term PTSD looks like? You have a There was a good example in your book. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean you, you are jumpy, you react to noises, you have trouble sleeping, you have nightmares about the thing that could kill you to sort of remind you that your life's in danger, you're depressed, it keeps you quiet and sort of out of harm's way, you're quick to anger, which, which makes you prepared, to, you know, ready to fight. It, uh, it, it, it's not a comfortable way to be, but if your life's in danger, you don't want to be comfortable. You're comfortable, you're complacent. And so once your life's in danger and you've been traumatized by, a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, lion, a lion attack or you know, whatever, whatever it is that was tormenting us in our, in our evolutionary past, what, what you, you, know, you survive that situation. And for some time, for some weeks, maybe some months, you're, you're on edge, you're alert, you're jumpy, you're doing all the things that someone in a, you know, in a danger zone wants to be doing. Um, it makes perfect sense unless you take that person and pick them up and drop them down in an American suburb. And suddenly this adaptive behavior just looks bizarre, right? Like, what, you know, you you keep jumping every time the phone rings. Like, the phone's not going to kill you. Come on, man, what's going on with you? You know, it's a, it, that person is having a completely a, adaptive response to danger in, 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 a, in, a, in, the, in the wrong context. Our evolution didn't predict the fact that you can be in grave danger and then suddenly be in complete safety uh, in an American suburb. Like, evolution didn't see that one coming, right? So so that's short-term reaction to trauma, and it goes away. In, in, in most people, it goes away. In me, it did. Um, and only in about 20% of people do they get stuck in a sort of trauma loop where it turns into, it doesn't go away, and it turns into long-term chronic PTSD. Now, that is not adaptive. That is not healthy. 
that actually impedes the living of one's life. It impedes survival. And um, so the, 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 when we talk about problematic PTSD, uh, and I do keep, I retain the D at the end of the, the, the disorder in that phrase, I retain that word. I mean, people are applying for disability from the, lifelong disability from the government. That, that qualifies me. If, you know, if you're asking for lifelong disability from the government, that you have a disorder. If you have trouble leaving your house, if you have trouble leaving your life, you have a disorder. Um, I, I don't think the risk of stigma is sufficient to obscure the, to, to, to the, the true meaning of that word. It's an important word. Um, treating long-term trauma is a different issue, and, and it's very important to remember that the, the, the predictor, one of the predictors of who will get long-term trauma um, is their experience in childhood. The strongest predictor of who will get long-term post-traumatic stress disorder are people who were abused as children and suffered trauma as children. Uh, and that is a very, very important thing to know for the military when they're sending people into combat. And they really want to make screen for people who, if you want to bring down the PTSD rates, you want to screen for people who are already traumatized as children, sexually abused, violently abused, lost a parent, uh, broken home, whatever it may be. Those kinds of things are more strongly predictive of long-term PTSD than the intensity of the trauma itself. But how do we? How should we treat soldiers when they return? What What are we not doing that they need? Do you, you mean all soldiers, or or soldiers who are? Um, still experiencing combat trauma. I would I would say I in my opinion just based on and I've read the book I would say all soldiers. Well, I I'm not even sure what to say. I, I mean, I you know, the problem is they're returning to a fractured, alienated, wealthy modern society and so, you know, they're re- they're returning to a to a society that already has very high levels, very high rates of suicide and depression and schizophrenia epilepsy and child abuse and all these other social and psychological ills. So, you know, it, we, what we need to do is heal ourselves. I mean, if we can, you know, if we, with the society vulnerable veterans, psychologically vulnerable veterans need to return to is a close, connected, cohesive society, which is the kind of society that we should all want to belong to. It's just that we don't, because, and that's the problem. That's the point of my book. So I, I actually don't think there's a quick fix, and, and the fix, frankly, the, the, the thing that would help soldiers is actually what the entire society needs. So it isn't even a question of how do we treat soldiers, it's how do we treat ourselves? Like how do we as a nation, as a people, want to treat ourselves? How do we want to live? What kind of society do we want to live in? If we heal that, and I think it, healing is the appropriate word, if we heal that, I think so, you know, soldiers are going to benefit along with everyone else. What I don't think we have to do or should do is design a response specifically to soldiers that ignores the fact that everyone else is suffering as well in sort of less obvious ways. Um, kind of to that point, you you write about the, the modern Native American tribes uh, and the way that they treat their modern soldiers, the soldiers that are going off yeah. to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I thought that was very interesting. And I was wondering if you would describe that for us, kind of so that people can see I guess a way, a, a, a better way to treat people in an, in, in a modern society that it's the, the, this, the, I, I fear that people reading your book and hearing this conversation would think that this, this sounds daunting and far too hard and that, uh, that you're asking people to get right. up your, their iPhones. And I don't think that's what you're doing. I, I you know, I don't think that's no, what you're doing. 
No, it's not. I mean, you know, the, the book is sort of much more diagnostic than than it is um, prescriptive. But but here's a few things that 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 I think play off of our tribal heritage as human beings um, that I think would help enormously. You wouldn't require a complete revising of society, and you can keep your iPhone. But um, you know, first of all, I think like, as an Israel National Service would be enormously psychologically healthy, not only for veterans returning from wars to a society that has national service, but for the youth population itself. I think one of the um, problems in our society is that it is very fractured. It's divided racially, it's divided economically, it's divided politically, and national service um, with a military option, I, you know, personally, I think it's, I don't think it's moral to force someone to fight a war that they're against, but, but I think everyone, I think it would be a great thing for this country if we had some form of national service, ob- obligatory national service for young people. That, I think, would be very, very helpful psychologically. Um, these ceremonies that I referenced, a common theme in reintegrating warriors from the battlefield, and I was, I was looking at American Indian tribes, of course, many of those tribes were very, very warlike, and they were quite good at sending young men out to fight and bringing them back home again, psycho, you know, psychologically intact. Um, there's no mention in the ethnographies and the anthropology of the American Indians of, of post-traumatic stress disorder in, in suicide, depression, all of those things are, are go virtually unmentioned in the anthropological literature. So they, they, they seem to have had an effective way of dealing with those issues. And then very important step is to allow the warrior to tell his community, the people he fought for, tell them what he did for them, right? Often it's in the form of a long boast, but so be it. Whatever it is, they stand there and they act out and they dance out and they speak out their experience on the battlefield, what they did for their community. And, And it's a completely cathartic public moment. So I had this idea that the version that we could do as a modern society is on Veterans Day, town halls all over the country are not being used because it's a holiday. And if you unlock the doors and turn on the PA system um, and made town hall available to any veteran of any war to stand up for 10 minutes and speak about what the war felt like to him or to her. Um, some people are going to be very proud and they're going to say they missed the war, that it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Some people are going to be, um, and you know, I know, think politically liberal people are going to be uncomfortable with hearing that kind of thing. Some people are going to be so angry about the war that they're just, they'll scream the whole time. And I think conservatives might be made uncomfortable by that. Great. You know, this is all part of the war experience, right? And some people are going to be crying too hard to even speak at all, and, and everyone's going to be uncomfortable with that. But, but the good thing is that it makes the emotional fallout, the emotion, emotional consequences of war, it makes it a community-wide concern. It makes the entire community that sent people off to war, it makes the emotional fallout theirs as well, so that... It's not just the person who fought the war for us that's processing those emotions. It's everybody. And if someone says, you know, I made a mistake, I was in Baghdad, I made a mistake, I killed a civilian, I thought they were a threat, 
they weren't, I killed a civilian and I'm heartbroken the rest of my life that I did this. When you tell your community that, it means the whole community killed that person and shares in the moral guilt. Or if someone says I'm really proud of my service, the whole community can be proud. That's what it means to be a tribal society. And I think there's a way to actually recreate that every Veterans Day in every town hall across the country. And I've stuck, if you go to my website, sebastianyounger.com, there's a page devoted to how to organize and run a Veterans Town Hall. It costs no money. All you gotta do is get the town manager to open up the doors, turn on the PA system, and get the word out that if you support the troops, you come to town hall and listen to what the troops had to say about their experience in World War II and in Korea and in Vietnam and in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think that is a lovely note to close on. Um, I think that's a, that's a wonderful call to action. I think the American civilian and military divide that we talk about all the time is, is, uh, is aggravating these problems. And I think that that is a one small change, one small thing that all Americans could do to make this better. Uh, the book is by Sebastian Younger. It's called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. Uh, it is available now. You should read it. It's short and it's incredible. Sebastian Younger, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's War College. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to get your comments on iTunes or through Twitter. We're at war underscore college. Also, take a second to subscribe to the show with your favorite podcast app. And if you do so, we'll send you a free pony. Okay, no, we won't. The show was created by myself with Craig Heddick. It's co-hosted by Matthew Galt and produced this week by Bethel Hafty, who rocks, but in a quiet way. One last thing. If you like sports, you'll love our Keeping Score podcast. You can find it on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcasts are sold. Next time on War College. I mean, it is it is the case to abolish the United States Air Force, but the way to think about it is more of a bureaucratic reorganization. 